regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where I hold long-form and in-depth conversations with data practitioners to unpack the narrative journeys of the career. My guest today is Taimur Rashid, the Chief Business Development Officer at Redis Lab. He's responsible for developing emerging business and leading strategic business and corporate development at the organization. Currently, he's uh, leading initiatives related to AI and ML. Uh, prior to Redis Lab, Taimur led the worldwide customer success for Microsoft's Azure Data and AI. He jointly led the design, implementation, and landing of one of Microsoft's largest field transformation, which combined customer success support engineering, and technical account management. Before Microsoft, Taimur was the managing director for Amazon Web Services, platform technology and applications, where he led business development from 2008 near its inception to 2018, when the business reached $25 billion in ARR. Taimur also helped for some of the key partnerships and customers, including Airbnb, Capital One, Dropbox, Liberty Mutual, uh, NASA GPL, NASDAQ, Netflix, Nintendo, Intuit, SAP, and Samsung. Taimur grew up in three countries and lived in five states. Bellevue, Washington is home for him, where he lives with his wife and three boys. He enjoyed cross-training, hiking, and biking. He is an avid reader of technology, business, and history. He also enjoys art, music, coffee, and uh, cooking on the weekends for his family. So Taimur, it's my pleasure to have you on the show. It's great to be here, James. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So by way of introduction, I saw that you completed your bachelor degree in computer science from the University of Texas Austin in the early 2000s. So yeah, uh, could you mind kind of going over your academic experience there? Yeah, you know, I mean, overall my academic experience was great. Uh, you know, prior to uh, enrolling at UT Austin, I actually spent three years in the East Coast, and so I went to a college prep school in a really small town called Mercersburg. So I was uh, part of Mercersburg Academy, joined there as a sophomore. And, you know, when I look at my experience, you know, kind of prior to college, uh, those three years were really pivotal for me because, you know, being part of a college prep school like that, it was a really small school. I mean, my graduating class was 125 people and we had about 425 some students across four different grades, actually, from ninth all the way to 12th grade. Uh, but when I look at those three years, it, you know, it really got me ready for college, right? And so there was a lot of thought process that went, went into structuring time and structuring time across, you know, academics, sports, extracurricular activities and community service. And so when I really look at kind of that foundational upbringing during those three years, it was really centered around just uh, structuring time really well. And so when I started college, I, I felt like I was ahead in many ways, right? And so, you know, going from a, a school of 425 students to, you know, several thousand uh, freshmen, I think my freshman class was about 7,000 people. It was a big change for me. 
Uh, but luckily, since I, you know, had this three years of just kind of, you know, grooming myself and uh, really kind of structuring my time, it helped me make my world a little smaller uh, when I went into college. And, you know, over time, I started expanding the different groups I was a part of, the different sports that I did. And so overall, it was a really rich experience. I joined as a bio major. And like, uh, you know, most folks from the Indo-Pak culture, I was pre-med. And, you know, after taking organic chemistry for a couple of semesters, I realized that, you know, I've limited my chances to get to medical school. Uh, But not only that, I just had a curiosity to learn things. And so I took a few computer science classes. And eventually, uh, in my sophomore year, I switched over to be a computer science major. And so that was a great experience overall for me, uh, just combining the different things that I learned across, you know, biology and computer science and humanities. So, you know, overall, it was a rich experience for me. Thanks for sharing that experience. Do you recall any favorite ComSat classes that you took at Austin? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there were three in particular that I really, really enjoyed. The one was object-oriented programming. And so that was kind of my first introduction to C++ and had a really good professor downing. And so I really, really learned quite a bit there. But I think the other two classes that even today I think about a lot and I actually apply some of the topics in my day to day. One was automata theory, which was really about, you know, kind of the overall philosophy behind computing. And then I think the third one was knowledge-based systems, right? And so I remember taking a class with a professor where we talked a lot about knowledge-based systems. It was kind of a, a little bit of a foray for me into uh, AI and machine learning. So those are three classes that really stood out for me. Awesome. Yeah, I'm sure that the context of those classes uh, set the fundamentals for what you kind of leverage throughout our individual career thus far. Based on my research, your first job out of college is a quality assurance engineering role at this organization called Vignet. So what was the most valuable lesson that you learned from that job? You know, um, that's a great question. I was really fortunate enough that I actually started an internship at Vignette during my final year of college, right? And so I sort of did a part-time internship and I joined their quality assurance organization and For those that don't know, Vignette back in the days was, you know, kind of the the marquee content management software provider back in the early 2000s. And so for me, I think one of the most important things that I learned, you know, as a QA engineer at Vignette was just this concept of attention to detail, right? And so given the fact that, you know, QA organizations are further downstream across the software development lifecycle, For me, it was really about learning how to focus on detail, right? And so, you know, we had these functional specifications and these, you know, quality assurance test plans that we'd run across the various aspects of software. And sometimes it was not just following what's in those test plans, but more importantly, kind of stress testing the application uh, around corners, right? And so that really meant developing a good sense of detail, And looking at the various aspects of UI, of user experience, you know, the overall flow for the end user and and, and focusing a lot on that. And what was nice about that skill set was it really helped me when I, you know, got my 
first true job at Siebel Systems, right? Where now it was a big company, you know, they had a very waterfall approach to how they built software. And so just having that attention to detail, you know, sort of gave me a, a little bit of a leg up uh, compared to my peers because I just had that experience. And so, you know, nothing, nothing competes experience, right? So when you bring experience into a new role, there are a lot of things that you learn that aren't in the textbook, which you can apply uh, in your day-to-day job. And so I think that was the most important thing for me was attention to detail. Yeah, thanks for sharing yeah, the context and, and what you learned from that experience. So you, yeah, you mentioned a little bit about your next role working at SIBO. Yeah, so like, let's talk about that. You know, after spending about two years at Vignet, you spent more than six years uh, with SIBO, later Oracle, across a variety of roles, including uh, business development, product management, supportability engineering, and quality assurance as well. Uh, what have been some of the big learning curves as you transition from a polytechnical engineering focused role to more customer facing functions? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, in my almost six and a half years between Siebel and Oracle, I had the opportunity to almost play several different roles, right? And so even though I started off as a QA engineer at Siebel, I ended up taking a role in supportability engineering, product management, and then eventually business development. You know, I think what was really interesting across all those four different functions was the common thread of the products that I worked on. And so I was aligned to uh, business intelligence and data warehousing products. And what's unique about it is as I started doing my existing role, I got exposure to roles that were either upstream or downstream from my current one. And what that meant was, is the exposure, number one, got me very curious about those different roles, right? And so in order to sort of understand what those roles were, I spent a lot of time with people that were experts in those roles, right? And so the first one was product supportability. I got exposure to how certain individuals were looking at the product from a supportability perspective, right? And what that meant was, uh, you know, I had to learn a new vocabulary. I had to learn about the approach and the overall thinking that went behind that function. And in learning about it, what's unique is it sort of helped me make that functional leap from one mindset to the other. And by the time I immersed myself so much in working with those teams, I had a natural progression in just becoming part of that team. And so as I look at, you know, kind of the different jumps that I made from, you know, one function to another, the common thing that I did was I spent time with the experts. I learned about their approach and their way of thinking. And more importantly, I learned about the vocabulary that went into that function. Mm-hmm. And so from supportability engineering, I went into product management. And from product management, I actually helped out with an acquisition that Siebel did during that time for a predictive analytics company. And in in that whole process of the due diligence, I started learning about business development. And then I had a natural segue into doing business development during my final year and a half at Oracle. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Seems like key, like you already mentioned here, is like try to spending as many time with the people who've done it before. So you you can you know, shortcut the process of acquiring new knowledge. It also make it easier for you to apply some, some of that learning from the conversation when you transition to new role as well. Yeah, you mentioned you, you have a little bit with the BI and data warehousing products during this time, right? I'm, I'm just curious, like, what was the state of BI and data warehousing products back in, you know, 
2005, 2006-ish. What does the market look like at the time? On the data warehousing side, the market had, you know, more or less kind of uh, matured in a way where you had a lot of big players in the data warehousing space, including, you know, not only companies like Oracle, but at the same time, you had companies like Teradata and Atiza uh, that were coming up with these new data warehousing appliances, right? But what was more interesting was business intelligence. And given the fact that Siebel Systems was a CRM company, they had so much data around sales, marketing, and support, which typically they called front office applications, that now with data warehousing capability, there was a huge opportunity to do business analytics, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you look at kind of Siebel's core product of CRM, the next gen aspect of it, which, you know, added more value to Siebel customers was the business analytics and the business insights, right? And so that was, uh, I don't want to say it was a nascent area as much as it was a hyper growth area, because during that time, not only did you have Siebel analytics, but you also had companies like, you know, Cognos and business objects, MicroStrategy. A lot of them were really trying to unlock data insights for both front office and back office applications. So being part of that kind of hyper growth phase of business intelligence, for me, gave a lot of exposure to the applicability of data analytics for, you know, top line business outcomes that companies were trying to drive. Yeah, that's an excellent insight. Thanks for sharing that. Reflecting on all the six-year journey with Oracle, what do you think uh, some of your proudest accomplishments are? You know, there were, there were a lot of good milestones during my time there, but I think the three that sort of stand out where I sort of learned the most and I actually got an opportunity to deliver a very good product. The first one was an integration that we did with Microsoft Exchange Server and Siebel CRM. And what was nice about that project is it was my first exposure to a partner integration. And in fact, it was because of that project that I actually flew up to Seattle for the very first time back in 2004 uh, to actually meet the Microsoft Teams. Uh, little to know that, you know, Seattle will be home for me eventually. It's been 12 years now since I've uh, been in the Seattle area. And so that project was great because I got this exposure to how to work with a partnering company on a technical integration, right? And eventually we launched that product and it added a lot of value for CRM customers. The second one was, you know, right around that time, 2005, Siebel had started a project where they were re-architecting the entire platform around service-oriented architectures. And what was nice about that is that that was a very emerging concept because that's where you had web services come into play. And so what's really interesting is that was right around the same time that Amazon was making a big shift towards service-oriented architectures. And in 2006, that's when AWS got formed, right? So, so that was a second project for me that I think was very memorable and one that I'm very proud of because I learned so much about service-oriented architectures. And then I think the final one was a go-to-market effort that we did at Oracle where we just saw an increase of the number of SaaS companies, software as a service companies that were using Oracle as their underlying platform, you know, across, you know, database, application server, and all aspects of the tech stack. And so this was a go-to-market effort that, you know, I had partnered with Anshu Sharma, um, who kind of led that whole effort. He's now the CEO of Skyflow. 
And what was really exciting about that was it gave me this exposure to SaaS. But more importantly, that was the first time I actually heard about cloud computing. And because of that, you know, in 2008, I ended up, you know, saying, hey, well, AWS is doing cloud computing. And that's what drew me to move to Amazon. I see, yeah. Learn about independent integration, service-oriented architecture, and then cloud computing. Those are the three key projects that you extract the most line from working at Oracle during this period. Just out of curiosity, I mean, it's been, I guess, like 13 years since you um, work at Oracle, but I'm curious whether or not you still kind of follow the trajectory of the organization throughout this year. What do you think about the Oracle as a whole organization and how they might innovate in, in various new technologies looking forward? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, you know, one thing is for sure that, you know, Oracle as a database and as a technology company continues to be a very indispensable part of the IT landscape, right? And actually, when you look at the application strategy that Oracle ran, they're also very indispensable in the application space, right? Because if you look at the Oracle database footprint, if you look at the footprint of, you know, enterprise business suite, or even, you know, both front office and back office applications, um, still very ubiquitous within the IT estate of most, you know, Fortune 1000 companies, right? What's interesting, though, is that it took them some time to really adopt the cloud strategy, right? And for, I think, the longest time, there was a lot of pushback to that. But then eventually, they leaned into it. And, you know, while I think they are trying their best to transform and evolve uh, as a company, both culturally and technology, it'll be interesting to see how things play out for them over the next, you know, 12 to 18 months, because, you know, companies like AWS that have you know, taken a huge lead on the market and Azure, you know, Microsoft Azure, you know, catching up very quickly. I think it's going to put Oracle in an interesting spot where they kind of have it a, you know, a make it or break it moment here over the next 12 to 18 months. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for sharing the insight. So uh, in 2008, you um, decided to enroll to study at the Stanford Center of Professional Development. However, you drop out after the first semester and move to Seattle to work for Amazon Web Services. What was the rationale behind that decision? Yeah, that's a good question. And it brings back many memories because for the longest time, my parents were really encouraging me and almost forcing me to do my master's. And, you know, I pushed back on it for the longest time because, you know, one, I think it was a bit of laziness, right? And secondly, I was really enjoying working and I was learning a lot in my day job that, in many ways, I felt like I was kind of getting my master's, you know, uh, through the work that I was doing. I ended up taking a strategic marketing class at Stanford. And when I took that class, it opened my eyes to a whole new dimension of, of business and technology. And after I took that class, I finally said, okay, well, let me enroll in the Center of Professional Development as a part-time student. I ended up taking one class, which was dynamic systems. And right around that time, I had been interviewing with Amazon Web Services and I got the offer. And, you know, clearly they were going to pay me a lot more. They were going to fly me up to Seattle, find a place for me. And so a bit of the rationale was, hey, I, I can't miss this opportunity, right? And so interestingly enough, Amazon wasn't one of the sponsoring companies for the program. So I kind of had to stop that whole effort after my first class. 
in hindsight, though, it was the best decision I made because in three years, I learned so much about business, technology, strategy, operations, that in a way I felt like I got a little bit of my MBA in those three years. And, you know, when you fast forward, I spent about 10 years at AWS. And so there was a compounding effect of things that I learned. So in a way, I go back to my parents and I tell them, I think I got two MBAs. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a very great analogy. Yeah, let's um, you know, investigate more on those job, journey, uh, AWS, right? So you work as an enterprise sales manager in your first two years at the company. You know, from the experience of hiring for your team, what are some of the most important attributes of an exceptional sales talent? Yeah, that's a good question, James. You know, I mean, I think... Um, in, in, in many ways, you know, as you interview more people and as you interact with more people in an organization, you start identifying certain characteristics of people that truly, you know, results in more deterministic outcomes, right? And so when I was looking for sales talent, you know, there were a few things that in particular that I really looked at. You know, one of the first qualities that I always look at is an individual's, you know, self-belief and confidence, right? And this is sort of across all roles, right? But in sales, it's particularly important because what I've seen is, you know, great sellers believe in themselves and they have the confidence to project that self-belief in ways that truly matter, right? And in ways that help convince other people, right? And secondly, I think related to that is a person's ability and willingness to learn and experiment. Because the reality is, is, Sales is not an easy job, right? And in most cases, your first several sales, you're going to get turned down. People are going to close the door on you. And you almost have to have this, you know, tenacity within you to be able to experiment and to be able to, you know, learn, right? And it's not only learning about good products, it's about learning about customers and empathizing with them, right? And so anyone that sort of has that willingness to learn and experiment, I think will demonstrate that ability to not give up, right? And, and just keep trying until you find something that works. And then thirdly, I think, you know, what's very unique is how much charisma does an individual have and uniqueness with what they bring to the table, right? Because you can create a playbook and anyone can follow the playbook. And in most cases, you can have a deterministic sale. But the reality is, is if you can bring uniqueness in how you sell, and you can bring your own character and your own experience into a standard playbook, you really start to show people your unique value. And at the end of the day, you know, products may be great, but people like to buy from people that they trust and like. And so that's why I think likability and charisma and your ability to bring your uniqueness into the sales cycle is another important quality. And I would always look at that with what uniqueness and charisma would an individual bring to the interview process, right? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for yeah, being very concrete with those three bullet points, you know, self-living confidence, willingness to experiment and then charisma and uniqueness. And I think, uh, yeah, I mean, enterprise sales is definitely challenging. I think like like you already mentioned, come up with a way to, you know, encoding a certain playbook where everyone can contribute to part of the team is, is something important to ease that process for new salespeople to join the team. In the next four years, you led business development for AWS database services, including 
you know, products such as DynamoDB and Redshift, as well as the AWS Compute Services for products such as EC2 and Workspaces. So could you mind sharing a few anecdotes on some of the successful product launch as well as their market expansion strategy? Yeah, no, that's a great question. You know, AWS always took a very customer-centric view and approach with how they build products. And for us, it was really about understanding the customer need, the pain point, and, you know, the overall opportunity, and then really building the product around that capability, right? And one of the early strategies when we were putting together the database strategy for AWS was this whole concept that, you know, there's no one database that's going to meet all the needs of developers and for that matter, applications, right? And so we had this concept that databases are purpose-built. And we always said, well, what are the attributes of the application that ultimately inform the kind of database that you need to support that application? And it was a similar concept that we applied to the compute services as well too, right? So what are those configurations of CPU, memory, storage, networking that align with the application that a customer is trying to build, right? Because the footprint will change if you're running an application server versus if you're trying to do, you know, deep learning training, right? And so that whole mentality of just really understanding the customer application, what are their needs, and then building products that gave developers the choice was largely how we went to market. But more importantly, though, it was also market readiness and awareness and an understanding of the product adoption lifecycle for how we sort of infuse that in our go-to-market strategies, right? Because at the end of the day, in many cases, we were selling to early adopters before certain products got more mainstream. And so for us, it was that market awareness, that product adoption lifecycle understanding, along with the products that we're building that helped us create these target market segments and eventually running sort of different go-to-market strategies across those different segments. Yeah, I see. Also, I'm just curious, like, you know, as like a business manager, besides working directly with, you know, your team, do you collaborate with other functional departments within the AWS team? And if, if so, like, what are the typical, like, counterparts that you collaborate with to come up with this GTM uh, motion yeah. for these products? Yeah, no, that's, the, that's a good question because there was a lot of downstream teams that we had to interact with, right? So if you look at a GTM strategy, we had this concept of, you know, what's the minimal deployable unit that we need around a particular go-to-market strategy, right? And that not only entailed the technical resources like solution architects that were needed to support the product and the sellers who were kind of the primary account team members, it was also us thinking very methodically about, well, who are the partners that can help out with the expansion of the product adoption? What are training related things that we need to build? How do we you know, infuse this product into professional services. And so our go-to-market strategy basically identified all the business functions that needed to be trained on the product. And we had to have relevant messaging and activities associated with each of those groups, right? And so there was uh, almost like a cross-functional effort that we had to do in defining the overall go-to-market strategy. And in some cases, it, it actually meant that, hey, certain products we weren't going to run through the channel. It was going to be a very developer-focused effort. 
Other products which required more enterprise-like adoption required us to bring in professional services in or you know, a consulting partner. And so based on the product and the market we were going after, there was a different combination of teams we would bring around it as part yeah. of the GTM. Perfect. Yeah, thanks for segmenting those the different approach, uh, depending on the nature of the product and, and the relevant counterparts that need to be brought on during this is uh, GTM procedures. In the last four years of job tenure with Amazon, you led the incubation, market development, and technical GTM strategy and execution for the, the whole AWS platform across a variety of you know services ranging from infrastructure, data, developer focus, as well as emission technologies. So given the broad scope of AWS platform offerings, how did you institute the culture of customer obsession and operational excellence into your team? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I do think some of our guiding principles across Amazon and AWS were grounded on customer obsession and operational excellence. And so in many ways, the way we sort of built on that in, in business development was making sure that we really understood the customer pain point or the customer opportunity, right? And as we thought about business development, it was making sure that we highlighted our overall strategy around those key customer facing tenants, if you will, right? Whether it was simplicity, whether it was, you know, convenience or selection, right? And then when you look at operational excellence for us, you know, it was so paramount to ensure that anything that we did from a go-to-market perspective highlighted this operational excellence, because at the end of the day, that was the value proposition of cloud computing. It's, you know, why run this infrastructure in-house when a company like AWS has the operational experience to run it over many years, right? And so they're naturally experience that we have, scale that we have, and innovation that we've done around that. And that really fed our business development strategy, right? And so we could go to sort of any market segment, you know, whether it was a traditional IT organization, or even a line of business and really emphasize that customer experience at the same time, operational excellence and security. And that became guiding principles for us as we formulated our business development strategy. Mm, I see, yeah. This very important guiding principles that you can use to put that during the operation of the whole platform team. You know, just a quick note. So you spend like 10 years at Amazon at AWS, right? And the Amazon culture is always a fascinating case study for a lot of tech companies in general, ranging from the 14 leadership principles to the two-person visa team to like, you know, the, I mean, recently, you know, the new book, Working Backwards, a lot of people was, were raging about. And so I'm just curious, like from your experience working there as an insider, what are some of the, I think, like, do you, you believe like the key, you know, cultural aspect of uh, working at the company that, that you enjoy the most with? as someone who lead teams and enforcing that culture for the rest of the new highs and, and things like that? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think it, it all centered around this culture of innovation, right? And at you know, AWS, the way I always look at it is, and Amazon in general, they're able to take very, very hard problems, whether they're consumer-facing or you know, developer-facing or organizational-facing, and they're able to create a affordable offering in a very simple way. 
And they continue to espouse on value, selection, and convenience. And so they take these very, very hard problems, they package it up into an experience that's easy for the end user, and then they push it to the edge. And when I look at culturally, that's what Amazon's done very, very well. Uh, they've taken this very, very hard concept of, for example, in the case of AWS, infrastructure management, which was, you know, localized to a very special skill set and, you know, a certain amount of budget. And they basically democratized it so that they pushed it to the edge. And now a developer has enough capability to be able to construct their own data center, right? And so when I look at the cultural thing that Amazon's done really well, it's taking these very hard problems, making the onboarding very simple, making it affordable, and then pushing it to the edge so that many people can participate in that platform. Yeah, thanks for sharing that case study. I think that's painted a very vivid picture of how that ethos almost looked like in practice. After a decade with AWS, you joined Microsoft to lead the worldwide customer success function for their Azure data platform, analytics, and AI business. And in fact, you actually wrote a blog post outlining the three anchoring reasons for this current decision. So yeah, would you mind unpacking those reasons for the listeners? Yeah, you know, I mean, for me, it was a tough decision to leave a company like AWS after 10 years and, you know, obviously going to Microsoft, which, you know, was a competitor. But I was an interesting aspect of my journey was I was hungry to learn new things and get, you know, more experience with enterprise sales and with a technology company. And so, you know, in that, in that blog post, I sort of listed three aspects to it. One was around mission, right? And so while, you know, for the, for the last 10 years I was at AWS, there was this mission of empowering developers to be able to create applications uh, in the cloud, right? And I kind of built on that, but I was in search of something that had, you know, sort of this broad surface area. And what really excited me about Microsoft's mission was this whole thing about empowering every organization and every individual to achieve more, right? And, you know, there's no reference of technology, there's no reference of any kind of school of thought or anything there. It's really centered around human empowerment and that human empowerment to help people achieve more, right? And so I really like that mission and that kind of, you know, gravitated me towards it. The second aspect was people. And so in talking to certain people at Microsoft and really seeing how, you know, Satya was leading the whole cultural transformation at the company, it excited me to be part of that cultural transformation. And so, you know, as much as they say, you know, where you work is important, but equally important is who you work for. There were certain folks there that I felt like I could learn from and that could be good mentors for me over time. And also teach me skill sets that, you know, I was looking to develop, right? And then thirdly, I think it goes back to this builder mindset that I picked up and developed over my time at AWS, which was I had this hunger to go and build something new. And right around the time that I joined Microsoft, which was in 2018, uh, they did a big transformation on the sales side and they created this new function called customer success. And for me, it was an opportunity to take my many years of experience at AWS and help Microsoft build this customer success organization, 
this customer success culture. And, and those were kind of the three things that eventually made me make the move to Microsoft. Absolutely. And I'll be sure to link the blog post in the show notes as well. So listeners can read that and, and look at the details of what you talk about. Customer success, I think that's, that's been the theme of you know, your career and, and kind of focus as you uh, move from one organization to the other. Soon after joining Microsoft, you deliver this talk called Enabling Customer Success Through Evolutionary Architectures. And I believe that the central argument that you propose uh, in that talk, which I also summarized in other blog posts, is called Anyone uh, Delivering Customer Success for Cloud-Based Solutions Can Greatly Benefit by Applying an Evolutionary Mindset to the technical architectures being recommended. So can you uh, unpack that argument as well as some of the key points delivered in that talk? Yeah, no, uh, that was uh, one of the first talks that I gave after I joined Microsoft. And so it was during their annual sales kickoff event, which happens every summer. You know, the the, the topic was, was very interesting because I was thinking about, you know, what sort of new and inspiring thing can I give to these solution architects. So when I joined, there were about a thousand or so solution architects in the organization. And many of them were just trying to understand cloud. They were trying to understand the Azure platform. And what I wanted to do really in that talk was talk about how architecture and culture both influence each other. And this is something that I actually learned at AWS. Charlie Bell, who's the SVP of utility computing at AWS, I remember him saying this one time that you know, culture influences architecture and architecture influences culture. And so the basis of the talk was bringing this, you know, comparison of physical architectures of buildings and, you know, really marquee type architectural things in the world, you know, such as the Roman Coliseum or the Taj Mahal and how the physical architecture influences culture that gets created around it. And I made the same argument with technology too, is that the technologies that you use to build a certain software architecture, or for that matter, a cloud architecture, influences the culture that you create around it and vice versa. And you know, one thing that I learned in the process, even after leaving AWS was, if there's any technical reflection of Amazon's culture, that is AWS. And I can expand a little bit more on this, but, you know, as I was giving the talk and preparing the talk, I really wanted the teams to know that, you know, they're guiding principles that go into a software architecture or a cloud-based architecture, you know, such as Moore's law or Metcalf's law or Conway's law, and how that then influences the culture that you create around it. And there was this whole concept around evolutionary architectures that, you know, when you're working in the cloud, business needs are constantly evolving and changing. And so you have to not architect for a fixed sort of state. You have to fix for, you have to architect for an evolutionary state. And ultimately from the talk, there were five key takeaways that I really emphasized on. Number one, which is it's the business need that always determines the architecture that needs to be built and not the other way around, right? Um, Secondly, that with all architectures, data is the most important thing to think about because we live in a world where security and privacy are of paramount importance. And so one always has to think about data classification, 
protection and data sovereignty. The third aspect that I said is that, you know, customers are different, but as much as customer needs are different, there are repeatable patterns that can be implemented. And so the more one can create repeatability within cloud architectures, the more you can scale, right? Mm-hmm. The fourth thing that I emphasized was this whole concept around resilient systems. And so when you architect in the cloud, you have to really think about resiliency in a decoupled way. And what that means is you have to look at independent systems that are distributed and decentralized. And finally, you know, the main point that I was trying to educate the solution architects on was look at, hey, we're designing architectures that are constantly evolving based on customer needs which means you might be building an architecture that is brand new, uncharted territory. And one has to have the willingness to constantly learn, evolve, and make that a mindset, but keeping in mind that there are always foundational things that don't change. And so I ended my talk with a quote by actually one of the famous architects named Frank Gehry, where he said, you build for its time and place, but you yearn for timelessness. And what that really means is you have to build something that's relevant to the context, but while keeping it based on foundational principles. Yeah, I think that's an excellent like, delivery, to be honest, like how you kind of make that analogy between like physical architecture, buildings, monuments, right? And then relate that to, to the context of cloud-based solution in evolutionary architectures. Yeah, I'm just curious, like after you deal with that talk, how successful you you would say in terms of the way that the solution architect at Microsoft has applied some of these guiding principles that you wish for them to execute, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, the good thing about that talk is that it created enough inspiration that there were several downstream things that got created from it, right? So one of the things is that we created a community of people sharing architectures, right? And so we created a mechanism whereby solution architects started sharing best practices on cloud architectures. What was nice about that is it gave an opportunity for solution architects to share and get recognition for what they built, but it also became an education platform for new architects. Secondly, it helped the Azure teams eventually adopt the well-architected approach, which was something that AWS had started many years ago, And finally, you know, this well-architected effort at at Azure is a thing now, which is gaining momentum. Mm -hmm. And it also helps sort of influence the direction of cloud adoption framework. And so when I I look at the talk, it helped inspire some of these downstream things that the teams are doing right now. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. As we, in the topic of this comparison between Microsoft Azure and Amazon AWS, you know, uh, reflecting on your expert and leading technical GDM strategy at both of these very big platform vendors, how do you compare the business operation culture uh, at Microsoft to that of Amazon? You know, there's similarities and there are differences between both cultures and, and then how they operate as teams. You know, one thing I will say is that Amazon's both an agile and a fast company. And I make that distinction because, you know, Agility is really based on a company's ability to move quickly versus, you know, speed, which is all about momentum and how fast you can move, right? And when I look at Amazon and the processes are lean, the teams are smaller, the teams are single-threaded. And so from day one, they've sort of had this structure 
where they naturally have agility and speed as part of their DNA and their fabric, right? Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about Microsoft is, you know, ever since Satya took over in 2014, the company has been really trying to transform themselves both culturally and operationally, you know, with how they build products and how they do selling and all of that. And while it's taking them some time, they still have processes which are a little heavyweight, right? And so agility is something that they're working on. Speed, I, I think they actually move pretty fast, but the processes still require, you know, being more lean, right? And what's interesting about that is, you know, as I sat, you know, for 10 years at AWS and then three years at Microsoft, I noticed a lot of similarities with how they operate and a lot of differences as well too. But how, you know, Microsoft is trying to be more like AWS and how AWS has some aspects of it that are kind of becoming like Microsoft, right? Mm -hmm. And so I started having this appreciation of systems thinking when I was kind of evaluating both companies, because as much as you're trying to culturally change a company that Microsoft is kind of going through, there are times when you get a resurgence of the old way, right? And so I had a deep appreciation for systems thinking as I, as I looked at both cultures and how they operate. Absolutely. System thinking, that's super cool. I'm just curious, like, is there any recommendation that you could maybe throw it out there for listeners who want to develop a system thinking mindset? Yeah, there's a great book called Thinking in Systems, which is written by um, Danella Meadows. And it's one of those foundational books around systems thinking where, you know, the premise of the author is that, hey, you know, the universe is messy, it's nonlinear, turbulent and dynamic. And, you know, the world has a way of self-organizing itself and evolving. And so it creates both diversity and, and uniformity. And it's just, just such a foundational book on systems thinking. That's one book that I highly recommend. Like, yeah, be sure to include that in the show notes as well for people who want to learn more and understand the importance of system thinking. Since January of 2021, you have been the chief business development officer at Redis Labs and responsible for developing emerging business at Redis. So, you know, what about the Redis business that attracted you to join the organization? Yeah, good question. You know, I mean, I had exposure to Redis uh, early on, even when I was at AWS. And so I was both familiar with the technology and the business. In fact, I helped launch uh, a product called ElastiCache, which was a managed caching service. And when we started it, it, it supported Memcache. But then sometime down the line, we ended up supporting Redis. And the moment the service started supporting Redis, there was a massive sort of adoption and you know, record days and revenue that were hit. And so I immediately saw the value that Redis had as a technology that when I moved over to Microsoft, I helped bring the partnership over to Microsoft. And during that time, I developed a good relationship with founders of the company. When I sort of decided, you know, what's next for me in my chapter, I looked at the Redis technology and said, I still think that we're in the early days of what this technology can be, right? And what attracted me most about it was, number one, it's a database that's loved by developers, right? Mm -hmm. It's technical first principles are so sound in the value that it delivers around speed, throughput, and performance. 
and then its ubiquity across how Redis can be used across different applications for different needs. It's so vast that the surface area is so broad that there's so much opportunity left on the table to go realize. And when I looked at all of those things and this opportunity around Redis and the machine learning and AI market, it was a really exciting opportunity for me to come and you know, build this market for the company. I see, yeah. And we talk about like the foundation of Redis as an open source database, right? And I believe Redis Lab is like the commercial aspect being put on top of Redis, right? Can, can you maybe provide like this distinction for those who are not Redis users, just so people can have the context of what we're talking about? Yeah, yeah exactly. So, you know, Redis is an open source uh, database. Redis Labs is actually the custodian of the open source database. Founder used to be at Redis Labs at the same time. The biggest contributors of the Redis database come from Redis Labs, uh, even though we have a lot of community commits that happen as well, too. And so while we're custodians of the open source database, we also have a commercial offering whereby we take all the hard things of scaling Redis, you know, in a globally distributed way, you know, with the right levels of security, with the right levels of scalability and performance, And we basically offered it as a managed service called Redis Enterprise. So it comes in the form of software that you can, you know, deploy on premise, deploy on any cloud and manage it on your own, or you can use the managed database service that we have for Redis on any of the three clouds today. Perfect. And yeah, I guess based on my research, like like you mentioned, the database is trusted and, and loved by developers and also currently being used for a lot of the enterprise part being used for many top tiers uh, companies for data management and uh, analytics need. And so it seems like it's definitely a thriving business that you, you are spearheading. So specifically, you know, in your role as a chief business development officer, you currently leading a new initiatives related to AI and ML, right? Uh, while doing the homework for our conversation, I, I watched a couple of your talks given at conferences like RedisCon 2021 and ApplyCon 2021 to discuss the practical benefits of using Redis as an online feature store and Redis AI as a mechanism for more serving and monitoring. Yeah, so could you mind kind of going over well, some of the data challenges with operational ML, the emerging data architecture feature store and the uh, powerful capabilities of Redis as a solution for that? No, good, good question. And you know, this is an interesting journey for us as we look at how do we take Redis as a technology and then make it relevant in the machine learning and AI use case, right? And so a a bit of this goes back to really understanding what Redis is very, very good at. And it is all about speed, uh, low latency, high throughput, performance. And, you know, one of the things that we've learned is so much time, and I would say, you know, between 70, 80% of the time is spent in actually prepping the data you know, labeling it, doing the featureization of the data, and then actually feeding that into a model that you train before you can even get to the point of actually deploying it, right? And as we see that, you know, the bulk of the time is spent there, we realize very quickly that there are aspects of that whole life cycle where Redis can actually help in bringing better throughput. And when you look at Redis as a technology today, its primary use case is being a cache in front of operational data, right? And so that might be a relational database. It might be a NoSQL database. 
And interestingly enough, when you look at the data in the machine learning world, you have features and you have models. And you can apply the same concept of write-through cache, you know, low latency data store in front of feature data as well as in front of models, right? And so the value that we see is being part of that overall ML lifecycle and being able to say, hey, for production scenarios, Redis is a great storage for online predictions because it's all about low latency and speed. And when you look at like training or data prep, Redis as a technology can help with throughput, which means you can train your models faster, you can ingest data faster. And when you combine not only the cycle time of data prep and model building, combined with low latency serving and production, you all of a sudden compress the time that it takes to bring machine learning into production. And that's why our thesis is that in-memory database technologies like Redis can really help this whole life cycle. Just for those who are not familiar with this concept of feature store, essentially, it gets a lot of momentum in the past year or so, but uh, it's like an imaging layer that bridge the gap between data and models, right? And how do you see Redis Lab fitting that compared to other tools in the market? I'm just curious to hear your take about go-to-market strategy for, for Redis as a feature store. Yeah. yeah. Ultimately, I look at it this way that when you look at ML and AI infrastructure today, mm-hmm. there's a bit of a hodgepodge of different technologies underneath, right? Mm-hmm. And when you look at this whole effort of, you know, feature stores and how they, you know, centralize feature management, feature engineering in a way that distributed teams and multiple teams can actually share and reuse features towards model building and then online predictions, it gives Redis a great opportunity to be part of that modern AI infrastructure, right? And if you look at it, essentially it's the data layer within that overall infrastructure uh, that's being modernized. And for Redis though, at, at the end of the day, I look at it that it's primary value prop is in speed and low latency. And you know where you need that in feature stores is with online predictions, where you know 10 milliseconds, even sub-millisecond latencies matter. Use cases such as fraud detection, cybersecurity, even online predictions like latency matters in the millions, sometimes billions of dollars, right, for most companies. And so our overall go-to-market approach with this is Redis is the uh, underlying data layer within the production stage of modern AI and ML platforms. And it works closely with feature store providers and ML ops providers that are around it, right? And at the end of the day, if you look at that's Redis is the data store, the feature engineering tools such as, you know, Feast is an open source technology. There's a variety of others like Scribble Data, you know, um, Tecton. All those feature store providers can integrate with Redis as a database. And now you have sort of an, a complete solution for machine learning teams to be able to leverage. Yeah, like interoperability between product and just different tools, you know, partnership integration, which is one of the things that you mentioned, one of the lessons you learned from earlier days at Oracle. Yeah. Right? So I'll be sure to include those link to those talks as well in your show notes so, so listeners can watch it and then learn more about the whole architecture at that time we just mentioned and see how that actually works visually speaking. 
earlier this year, you gave this another excellent talk at the uh, Data Science Dojo event called First Principles in Building a Real-Time AI Platform. So the talk discussed the need for real-time AI, the five first principles for real-time AI, and the approach that this principle have been incorporated into the Redis platform. So yeah, can you go over some of these key ideas presented in the talk? Yeah, you know, I approached the talk in sort of asking five whys, right? And so it was an approach that I learned at uh, Amazon, which was you want to start off with why something is the way it is and keep asking yourself why until you get to an answer where you can actually take action on. So, you know, just to walk you through the way of thinking was we had this thesis that, okay, operational ML or operationalizing ML is difficult. The natural question is, well, why? Well, too much time is being spent in engineering and prepping the data, training the data. Uh, well, okay, well, why is that the case? Well, data prep has many challenges, right? There's discoverability challenges. There's duplication of features being defined. Sharing is not as easy. And so it creates this inconsistency with the features that are going into the models being built. Well, why is that the case? Well, every team is managing their own repository and that's creating inefficiencies. Well, why is that the case? Well, there's no centralized system of record and process to bridge the data and the ML models. And now you get to a point where like, okay, well, this, that's the opportunity then is centralizing the storage of features and then having a process around it. And so what I ended up sharing was sort of five first principles around that whole process. One, which is if you're going to go build a real-time AI system, you first have to make sure that you're grounded on a mission that transcends technology and really focuses on you know, business outcomes that you're trying to drive or societal value that you're trying to create. Secondly is when you define your outcomes, you have to almost articulate in very clear terms, what are the characteristics that define those outcomes? And when you're able to define characteristics, you're then able to take it to the third stage, which is now you can define scenarios, right? And for us, it was really important to define, well, what are the ML scenarios that we're trying to enable? Because that's gonna help guide requirements, right? So if your ML scenario is preventing fraud, then the system you wanna use or the requirement that you have is low latency, right? And once you define your requirements, this is the fourth point, which is you want to define them in a way that they're foundational, right? And while they're foundational, you also want to have some openness with how you actually implement them, right? And so part of the requirements, you know, there's so many ML frameworks that are out there, you know, supporting all of them is a monumental task. So you almost have to be very stubborn with, okay, which frameworks are we going to support? And that's where you establish a foundation. But then your openness is like, okay, even though we've defined these frameworks, how you approach it, what tools you use will have more openness there, right? And so I think it's always a good balance between foundational stuff and openness that you create. And then fifth, you know, I think in, in the Uber message that I was trying to really point out in my talk was, in order for real-time AI to be built, you really have to make features first-class citizens. And so 
it's very important to understand the hierarchy of needs that's associated with that. And, you know, there was a very good blog post by Eugene Yang from Amazon, and he talked about the hierarchy of needs associated with future stores. And I think that's just a foundational thing that when you base it on those first principles, then you can really build an AI system that's real time and that's durable over the course of time. See, yeah, thanks for sharing that. That is very concrete and very insightful. I'm just curious, like, oh, this five first principle or real time AI platform, which one do you think is like the hardest to institute? I think one of the hard things is defining the requirements, right? So if you actually look at the outcomes and then being able to put the characteristics behind them, mm-hmm. that's oftentimes the toughest thing to do, right? Because it requires you to really understand what outcome are you trying to drive, right? Mm-hmm. Very quickly, we like to go and gravitate towards the technology and talk about technology merits, which is you know a great thing. But when you get down to the business and the use case, the scenario, you really have to think about what is the end user, the customer facing impact of what we're trying to build, right? Mm -hmm. Is it to prevent churn? Is it to help in a recommendation that you do, right? And so that requires business domain context. Mm -hmm. And that has so much variability that you have to go close to the customer, close to the customer experience. And then you have to really draw out those requirements from that experience, which I, I think, you know, over time, companies get really good at it. But when you start at it, it's a muscle that has to be developed. Absolutely. Yeah. It's customer obsession again, which I'm sure you, you already work out a bunch at Amazon. Yeah. Just kind of curious to learn about Redis as a business. There is love in some of these initiatives moving forward. You know, what are some of the things that, you know, you and, and sort of the broader arc are working on for the rest of the year or next year, things like that, that we at a high level, you know, expect more from the Redis product, especially regarding to AI and now and, and data products. I, I break it down into sort of three things, right? The first thing is, is reminding everyone for why Redis is special and unique for what people do today, right? And then being able to transcend that into the machine learning context by being able to say that, hey, there is an opportunity to modernize the AI and ML infrastructure underneath. And here's where the technical merits of Redis as a database technology fit into that whole thing from storing features to being able to, you know, cache models for better performance, to be able to store model performance data, which from an observability perspective could be leveraged in a very fast way, right? And so for us, it's about then sort of educating our community and our customers about how Redis can be applied to the machine learning context, right? In many ways, you know, if I sort of had to simplify it, James, it's caching for ML data, right? And in its most simplistic form, that's essentially what it is, right? Because caching ML data is not going to only speed data ingest and model training, it's also going to just speed up online prediction, which ultimately affects customer experience, right? Top line and bottom line. Then I think the third aspect that we want to do is to be able to show that there are a set of applications that can be built on this modern infrastructure. So whether it's NLP, whether it's vector similarity, whether it's computer vision, because Redis is now in the fabric of the machine learning lifecycle, 
you can naturally extend it into all these different kinds of use cases, right? Which I really like to call ML-based use cases because they're horizontal in nature. But if I had to think about, hey, what is that killer machine learning app on top of Redis? I really like to say it's vector similarity. I, I like to say that, hey, it's a very complex problem to do entity matching, nearest neighbor-like search capability. And this is going to have applicability across e-commerce, across computer vision, you know, you name it. It's being able to show the art of the possible with that. And then ultimately that, hey, we work with all platforms. We work on all three clouds. We integrate with ML feature store providers. You know, if you use an ML ops platform, we integrate with that. We integrate with the observability folks like, you know, Fiddler and Arise and all that. And so for us, then it's taking that foundational understanding and then building the ecosystem around it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very, very excited to kind of hear that. Um, I think like in general, right, that thesis of, you know, expanding the pie and then partnering with other players in the ecosystem was, I think it's, it's pivotal in order to educate enterprise clients about the benefits of MOPS, data ops, and, and the, the broader solution infrastructure existing out there to, to bring, you know, ML into the real world, which is definitely what we all excited to work on. Kind of stepping back a little bit from your day-to-day work, I believe that you have also doing angel investing on the side. So you have been an active angel investors in uh, developer tools, companies such as Invent Hub, Sidekick Browser, and Megalix, AI and ML tools for companies like Zara Labs, for us, uh, ad tech startup, for instance, Educative. So what advice could you give for a smart driven operator who wants to explore angel investing? That's a great question. And you know, I never thought that I would angel invest in companies. You know, I did my first investment in a friend's company, actually Megalix. I learned a lot in the whole process. And, you know, over time, I've not only advised startups, but then, you know, continue to sort of increase my angel investments as well, too. Look at at the end of the day, I think when you look at investments, you're investing in people and technology and how both of those relate to a market opportunity, right? And, you know, what's very interesting is, you almost have to look at the individual aspects on their own merit, right? So people, the founders, the technology or the product that they're building and the market opportunity that they're trying to capture. But then what's more important is like what I like to call reading in between the lines, which is how do those three relate to each other and whether the dynamics, because there's a symbiotic relationship between the people that create a company the product that they're building and the market opportunity that they're going after. And as an investor, you want to be able to say, okay, hey, each of these three different aspects have a certain understanding and an assessment on their own, but then how do they all work together? And do the dynamics of the people, the technology and the market opportunity uh, present itself over time that they can not only capture value, but that they can accrue the value in a very meaningful way, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really about looking at the dynamics and the symbiotic relationship of all three before you actually make an investment, right? Because you might have a great product and a great opportunity, but the people that are behind it might not be able to capture the value and accrue that value in a way that's indicative of the market opportunity, right? 
And so I always say it's about reading in between the lines and, you know, looking and forecasting how that investment can play out over time. I love what you said about like symbiotic relationships that are very, very interesting. Great choice of word to talk about, like, how do you come up with, with this investment thesis? I'm just curious, like, you know, it makes sense to me that you invest in debt tools and AI and ML tools, given your experience at AWS and Azure. In terms of your interest in education, you know, can you tell the listeners more about like that interest and, you know, that investment in educating? What about ed tech and education that you think need to be addressed? Well, what I love about the model of educative, and I've been very keen on this whole concept of surplus, right, is any company, technology, or business model has an opportunity to create a certain amount of surplus. And platforms that can take surplus and then externalize it in a way where it not only benefits consumers, but it also benefits producers of the platform are very, very exciting to me. And what I loved about Educative's model was it was taking the surplus of software development knowledge, feeding it through a platform where software developers could teach software development to other people. And so it is taking the surplus of their knowledge and helping them monetize that while also passing on that knowledge to people. And when I look at the opportunity particularly with people trying to learn new skills, software development, Python, cloud, whatever it may be, this platform is just a flywheel. It creates a flywheel where, you know, people can produce very original content and curriculum, and there's a massive market opportunity for people that want to learn it, right? And flywheel just feeds on itself. And what's really exciting to me is, how the same platform can eventually help people find jobs, right? And so you learn skills, you apply those skills, and then you can find a job, and then you have a nice flywheel effect. That's why yeah. I'm so big on education in general. Yeah, absolutely. On education, content creation, those things have been very big on the horizon in the past year. And I think that definitely excited to see more momentum going on that creative economy. Reflecting on the average of career, how would you describe the evolution of tech leadership, strategic business development and customer success strategy in the past two decades? Let me answer that question sort of from my vantage point, what I've experienced, right? And so, you know, when I look at tech leadership, I think this is an area right now that is getting a lot of attention, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, for myself, when I look at it, I, I see three aspects of it that are very, very important, right? Number one is courage, right? I think it's so important right now for tech leaders to have courage because on one hand we are dealing with realities that are very very new to us right i mean think about the pandemic think about remote work and, and the different challenges and opportunities that it faces right and so as leaders we almost have to have courage to be able to address those new uncharted territories right and a bit of this is not only the courage that we have as leaders but then that courage just passes on to the people that we work with, right? And now we know that we can take on these new challenges together. I think secondly and related to that is empathy that's required of tech leaders, right? There's so much that's happened over the past 18 months where the emphasis on, you know, empathetical leadership is so important, right? We really have to put ourselves in the shoes of others to understand how can we lead through difficult times? 
How can we lead through times that are new to us, right? And then thirdly, and I think, again, related to the first two, is just curiosity that we develop as leaders and how that really enforces, and not only enforces, but actually encourages a culture of learning. And I think for leaders, it's just not general curiosity, it's genuine curiosity, right? And the distinction is when you're, as a leader, when you're genuinely curious about something, then you are more an active listener than you are when you're genuinely curious about something, right? Mm -hmm. And I've seen some of the great leaders just bring just genuine curiosity to the table where they're actually very genuinely interested in how can they help people, right? And I think those are three important aspects of tech leadership. On the business development side, you know, I do think I go back to first principles thinking. I think this is foundational in any business development work that one does. But then second to that is being able to look at things in a multidimensional way, right? And this is where, you know, a lot of people talk about transfer learning, where you take one discipline and you transfer learn that to another discipline. This is really about not looking at things in a two-dimensional way, but looking at it in a, you know, proverbial three-dimensional or four-dimensional way. And then related to that is not only thinking about first-order effects, but then second-order effects and third-order effects, right? It's like, hey, the pandemic hit and many people realized that, okay, we're all going to be stuck at home. But the second-order effect of that is, well, it's going to increase the number of, you know, video conferencing tools out there. Well, a second order effect to that is people are going to be stuck at home on video conference and that's going to affect, you know, well-being. That's going to affect physical fitness. And so when you think about second order and third order effects, you can start planning for how to address those over time. And then finally, when I look at customer success, I think this is just a whole transformation that's happened in the tech industry, largely, I think, driven by companies like AWS that have basically taken a traditional sales model and flipped it on its head and said, hey, it's all about customer success. It's all about helping people start small, start a very affordable, low barrier to entry way, and then over time start building what they do, right? Mm -hmm. And customer success is all about creating durable value over time to the point that I, I still recall at Microsoft, Amy Hood, who is the CFO of Microsoft, she said, hey, in a consumption business, customer success is all that matters, right? And so I really think that this is a way for companies and you're going to see more companies adopt it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for going over some of these details on, on all those aspects of my question, right? It's such a very, very great insights that I think a lot of people can take away from Especially in, in the last one, the customer success, you know, it was transitioned that you mentioned from sales-led growth to product-led growth and now like community-led growth. Like I think all those kind of put the role of customer success and then, you know, this sort of solution engineering in, into the forefront and become a very important role to hire someone who, who technical enough as well as have a good people-oriented mindset. And I think that's like the way, you know, enterprise sales look like these days. I want to round up our main conversation on a fun personal note. So you are an avid reader of technology, business, and history. What are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? Oh, there are a lot of books. I'd say I think the three that have impacted me the most, where I continue to reference quite a bit, is 
you know, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, which is written by Viktor Frankl. He was an Australian neurologist and psychologist. Has a great book on just helping people sort of understanding the purpose of life. Thinking in Systems. I referenced that book earlier too. Great foundational book on how to really think about systems. And I think the third one is a book called The Treasury of Rumi. And you know, Rumi is a very popular author, re- referenced in a lot of books. And it's interesting that this book really compiles a lot of his sayings and works,、uh, but it also gives a lot of nice commentary around it too. And that's one of the books that I have on my desk all the time, and I refer to it from time to time. It's just a very enlightening book. Obviously,、mm-hmm. yeah. Thanks for sharing that, and I'll be sure to include the link to all of those books、uh, recommendation. Industrial as well, so people can get take a look at that. Tamu, at this part of the conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment, in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions, and if you can give quick answers. Number one, name three people in the broader tech community whose work you admire. Whose work I admire, I would definitely have to say that I admire the work of Andy Jassy.、Um, he's now the CEO of Amazon, but I had the unique opportunity of working very closely with him when he was the CEO of AWS, starting all the way from 2008. So that was a great experience. I continue to admire his work, his approach, and his his overall philosophy on things. Secondly, I'd say that Melanie Perkins, who's the CEO of Canva, Canva is a、uh, graphic design platform. What I really enjoy and appreciate about her work is she just has so much resilience as a founder. You know, having pitched her solution to so many VC firms. She was just very persistent in, in how she did it, and now, you know, her company is unicorn. It's you know、uh, worth a lot.、Uh, she's created so much value. I think she has about 20 million people that are part of that ecosystem. So it's just great to see that. Thirdly, I think Jeff Lawson, who's the CEO of Twilio, I had the unique opportunity of、uh, working for a year a company, and so he's just a very thoughtful developer focused. Product-focused CEO and one who, you know, always brings the human side of things, and so I admire his work a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Those are very, very great profiles. And yeah, I think Jeff just also wrote a book, right? Focused on developer. Yeah, ask your developer. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely、uh, interesting to kind of hear your resonance with that as well. Startup kind of definitely something that that we all admire. Uh, number two, name one book that you would recommend for people to cultivate leadership mindset. You know, there are a lot of good books on leadership. The one that stands out for me the most, which I think is always a great place to start, is、uh, by Simon Sinek. He wrote a book called "Start with Why," and it's just a fantastic book for helping leaders have the right approach for how they inspire others. So, I would highly recommend that one. Finally. Imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the early stage biz ops and customer success practitioners on Twitter. What could you tweet about? What would I tweet about? Oh wow, that's a good question.、Uh, let's see here. You know, I would really emphasize this one thing, which is obviously in my mind these days as I think about the market that I'm building here at Redis. You know, durable businesses are anchored on delighting customers, and that begins with working backwards from the customer. And consistently delivering value in increments. So that's the thing that I would probably tweet about. I have to make sure that it's in the right 
128 character <laughs> limit. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great one. You emphasize on that. The team that we talk about in a couple of today, you know, your ability, customer session, working backwards and incremental delivery of values. So yeah, Tamu, I really enjoyed our chat today and learning about your early undergrad study at ET Austin, your first job as a security engineer at BigNet, your six years at Oracle, moving more towards customer-facing function, your decade career at AWS leading the platform team across infrastructure, data, and image technologies, your work at Microsoft on the Azure Data AI platform, and right now your work at Redis Lab as well. We have a lot of interesting insights regarding the evolution of customer success, technical GTM strategy, and even enterprise sales that I believe you know listeners can derive a lot of insights from and be sure to include all the links and talk and blog posts in the show notes so they have a chance to read watch and you know even reach out if they're interested to learn more about you and some of the work that redis lab is doing tamo i really enjoyed and i uh, hope you have a great rest of your day yeah no thanks so much james i really enjoyed the conversation and you know thanks for the opportunity to be part of this podcast well that's the wrap for another episode of datacast hopefully you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.